Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Ben Mergy. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi, my weekly podcast where we tend to look at people and uh, not necessarily events, but mostly people through a spiritual lens. Uh, you know, over the last, uh, I don't know, eight or nine months that I've been doing this podcast, I've really found it so fascinating that sometimes when I talk to people, I realize that having a spiritual conversation with them is not something that they're used to. They're used to having something either that they, a project they're excited about or a way of life, but there is a spiritual conversation that is going on at all times for all of us. And the ability to be available to that conversation, which is not necessarily one of words, but is the actual flow of the creation that is around us at all times, is so fascinating to me. And the more I explore with people, the more I really start to delve into the idea that it is presence, absolute presence, that makes us available. And what doesn't make me available to people is my worry for what has happened or my fear of what will happen. But consciousness doesn't reside in that. Ego resides in that. And I, right now in the middle of writing um, a a book, while I'm in the second draft of writing a book, a working title is I Thought He Was Dead. Uh, And it is a bit of a a, a memoir. uh, I'm doing the life review part of it right now. And it is so interesting to go back over the egoic journey of life and realizing that the spiritual life does not feed on that particular diet, that it feeds on another part of our soul uh, that needs nourishment and finds it hard to to get that nourishment, I think, in, in many cases. We live in a even in spirituality, I find we live in what you would call spiritual materialism, a sort of buffet of spirituality, a shopping for God, as it were, like we shop for everything else. And uh, the more I go into my journey with people on this program, the more I get to really appreciate that we're all um, just here in a humble way, just sort of foraging through the remains of what we thought was a life and trying to actually be here for what is a life. So those things really resonate with me. Just finished the whole high holiday, the highest of a high holiday part of the season in the Jewish calendar. uh, And uh, that's always a beautiful time for reflection. I, I would offer a book that is based on a rabbi who spent the first part of his life in the Zen Buddhist tradition had given up his his Judaism, he thought, and moved very deeply into Zen Buddhist practice and uh, teaching and teachings, uh, and then pivoted to become a rabbi. Um, And he wrote a wonderful book about the new year and the atonement that comes with that new year called uh, This is Real and You Are Completely Unprepared. Uh, So I would suggest it to anybody who's interested in sort of looking through the window of what what Jewish people do during Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and what what we do uh, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Uh, One more piece of that was uh, there's a, a line that you say on the Day of Atonement that you repeat often who will live as they close the gates, as it were, who will live and who will die. And uh, the rabbi here uh, said, you know, when I was a rabbinical student, it dawned on me that I was reading this wrong. It's you will live and you will die. 
because in reality, we are always dying to the self that we believe that we've constructed and living forward again until almost inevitably we construct the next version of Ralph Benmergi or whoever you happen to be and then have that as a construction for a while. And then that starts, the scaffolding gets moved away and the walls don't hold and off we go again, living and dying. So it's not about our mortality, it's about our journey, I think. So lots of wonderful things can come from that. Um, today, I'm gonna to talk to somebody who has had their own spiritual journey. Lately, everybody wants to talk to him about the Beatles' spiritual journey, but I'm much more interested in his. Uh, and the life that he lives, and the life that he's led. Uh, his name is Paul Saltzman, and uh, he joins me now. How are you? Well, I'm actually terrific today. Oh, that's a wonderful thing. Does that come easily to you? It does, but it's a challenge. You know, I have all the temptations to go to the dark side. Dark side not being evil, dark side being stress around, am I doing something well enough is my... Um, uh, those people important to me in my life, are they okay? Can I save them? Can I help them? So I, you know, I grew up in a household that was um, not safe. My mother was an angel on the planet. My father was a famous broadcaster, and he was the opposite of an angel on the planet. Hmm. So I grew up being frightened. Um, so if I wake up on any given day, the first thing that happens is adrenaline, because that's how children survive. In fact, one of my spiritual guides said to me, do you know what the biggest addiction in the world is, Paul? And I thought about it, and I couldn't think of it. <laughs> he said, adrenaline. And if you think about it, and you look at the world, that's the biggest addiction. And probably it's probably, it's probably all addictions put together in the world and more than that. So yeah, I wake up in the morning and my adrenal gland has been trained to be on guard from, a ch from childhood. And uh, then I have to hopefully notice that and then take a breath and release my connection to that. So, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I grew up watching your father toss chalk in the air and tell people what the weather was. And in our house, even though we were Moroccans and not Eastern Europeans, we were like, wow, a Jewish guy is on TV. Is that ever cool? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll, t I'll share I'll share something with you. And it took me a, a lot of years to deal with this. So when I was young. So my father was a rageaholic, bless his departed soul. He lived a life that was not joyful. He got a lot of love, mostly from strangers, because he was, he was what you would call a fairly extreme narcissist. What that means is self-loathing. Most people think narcissism is self-love. Clinically, it's the opposite. It's self-loathing. So here was a man who because he was traumatized by his mother, in this case, who ruled the roost and was a tough, uh, a tough hombre, for whatever her reasons, God bless her soul, you know, we're all on this spiritual journey in one form or another. But so I grew up in a house where there was his rage, but he was very famous. Uh, his rage included three or four times in my life, um, punching me in the face. Now he was a high school, he was a university boxer 
and I was 12 or 13. So as we know, if we want to get real, one punch can kill people if it's somehow, you know, if you're really unfortunate. Luckily, it never hurt me except for tears and fear. And But I wanted people to like me. I had low self-esteem. And so from the time I was little, people would say to me, and it happens to this day, Ralph, seriously, it happens to this day, but the difference is I've changed. People will say to me, Saltzman, Saltzman, are you related to Percy? If I say yes, the next sentence is literally always the same. Oh, we loved your dad. Right. He was like part of our family. So when I was young, that brought me attention. And so I would say yes. Then when I started to work with my own inner being and started doing some therapy to sort out that childhood, for my 20s, I would say no. Is Percy your father? No, because I didn't want to deal with what came next. Right, right. So in that sense, I was free of that. And then after doing enough of my own healing, and to this day, when somebody says that, I just open my heart. I receive them because they're sharing something that was important to them. And I say, that's lovely. Thank you. And it doesn't bother me at all. In fact, it's a, it's a loving connection between me and this person. You know, very rarely in my life, I've said to people when they said that, maybe, maybe I said it two or three times. I said, that's lovely, but he wasn't a good father. So that I don't keep mute on the truth. Right. So you have your voice and your narrative because you're living in parallel universes. In your home, you're living with a man who you fear for all the wrong reasons. And out in the world, he's loved by everyone else. And you're left out of that conversation. Yeah. And that's a common story with performers, right? You have to be careful if you're, if you're a performer and you're looking for love, which is what motivates a lot of performers, not all of them, right? You have to, you have to grow yourself up into a, into a person who's a healthy performer. Well, I, that's absolutely, in my experience, the truth, because at one point, a friend of mine, Paul McLaughlin, was doing media training at the CBC, and he asked me to come and do an afternoon to the broadcasters there. I wasn't there anymore. Um, and I came to say things like, here's the bad news. To ask people to love you who you've never met and you don't know, to remember your name and to fall in love with you is not something that comes from a healthy place in a person. And Beautiful. then they'd, they'd look at me and then I'd say, but here's the thing. You have the tools to actually make them do that. The question that remains is now that you have their attention, what is it you want to say? Beautiful. And Beautiful. some of them would appreciate it and some of them wouldn't. They wouldn't get it. They just think, what? What are you talking about? And I just think, you know, you really, as a performer, you have to come to terms with that corrupted fuel. It's a sad fuel. It's not a happy fuel that says, please love me. And yet, as the artist, you have a responsibility to craft to your heart, to your to your kavanah, to your real intention as a human being, to do something with this gift. The question is, can you let go of the result 
and enjoy the process. So it's a strange, the whole journey we have is so strange. Let me ask you about, we're going to talk about joy in a minute because I've heard you say it a few times, but I, I want to talk about just when you finally got away from your home and from, oh, you're Percy Saltzman's kid and wanting to say, you have no idea. <laughs> when you finally left, went to Montreal, like moved out, was there a time or a moment where you finally just sort of went, what the hell is going on here? This ain't what I had in mind. Sure, sure. And it's um, part of the joy, capital J, capital O, capital Y, of making Meeting the Beatles in India, the film I've just finished, and it's now out in the world. Part of the joy was to deal with all of that and deal with it in a light and uh, loving and creative manner. So yes, that moment happened in Montreal, and it's what started the whole journey of meeting the Beatles in India. So, so I was in Montreal, I was working for the film board. I was an assistant director, a production manager, a researcher. And I, I woke up one morning in my little rented room down by the railroad tracks, literally. Um, and um, I had the shocking thought that there were parts of myself I didn't like, and I had never had that thought. I thought everything was going well. I had been a television star. I had had my own, I was co-host of a national youth public affairs program on CBC TV. I was in, even in university, I would, did some research for Lloyd Robertson when he had a program called New Generation. Um, I drove a sports car. I got laid. Uh, always respectfully, by the way, women for me were always human beings. And it, by the way, my father gave me a couple of enormous gifts. Besides the gift uh, through negativity, there's the gift through negativity, which is when I was young, I made a contract with myself unconsciously until I came to understand it years later that I would never be like that man. I would never be, I would never be like that father when I'm a father. I would never be like that person. That was the learning and a big learning through the negative. But the learning through the positive is my father and mother sat my brother and me down when oh, 12, 13 years old and said these words. I remember the words exactly. He said, my father said, it's okay if you have intercourse with a girl, but remember two things. It's your job that she not get pregnant and to remember that sh that other person is a human being. And my mother was there and she said stuff. So that was, that was incredibly wonderful parenting that moment. Yeah. So when I say I got laid, I meant it was, I had relationships with women. They were always in my whole life, respectful of the other and kind to the other. But you were uh, feeling your power too. Right. I mean, you were feeling oh, my, my TV own show, nice car. Big yeah. yeah, exactly. And I'd already been a civil rights worker in Mississippi. So I was proud of myself. I felt good about myself. Okay. Stop. So, That's not something that you drive by. I was a civil rights <laughs> worker in Mississippi. You're, you're not allowed. Um, why did you do that? I did it because I was brought up in a family of atheist, communist lefties. 
And my father was not an activist. He was an armchair activist. My uncles were communist union organizers in Montreal in the 30s. There's a funny phrase that if you weren't a communist in the 30s, you didn't have a social conscience. Right. I don't know if that... Red diapers, red diapers. Yeah, I mean, all that really means is to me, uh, communism to me, which got terribly distorted as capitalism gets terribly distorted they all get terribly distorted by what the same thing greed and power you know Mm. but but what i was brought up with was there's no god there's no spirit there's no soul but do unto others as you'd have them do unto you which is of course a perfect instruction i was also brought up to be and and it was a statement be proud you're jewish but I didn't wasn't in a synagogue till I went to a cousin's wedding when I was 15 or 16. I was brought up with with almost zero education in Judaism. Um, the first time I went to a Seder at dear friends of mine's house, it was the actor Saul Rubinek and his oh, wife yeah. Ellie and his wife Ellie. Now, Ellie is not Jewish, but she knows a thousand times more about Judaism than I do. And she <laughs> practiced it a thousand times more because she wanted to bring to her children their double tradition she's not jewish saul is jewish so um but the first seder i ever went to i was invited to um i've got an interesting story about that because your 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 show is not that kind of rabbi so i've rarely told this story but i think it's appropriate here um my best friend in university they had large family satyrs and I had never been to a satyr. So I asked Freddie, can I come to a satyr? He said, well, I might ask my mom. His mom said, no. Wow. No. For so, a satyr? That's where you're supposed to always, what, Elia, who, I mean, you're supposed to let stranger in. That's the whole point of the exercise. What's the empty chair for? Yes, yeah. it's, for the, it's for the divine. <laughs> Apparently but... not for Mr. Saltzman. <laughs> Apparently not. So, Cut to years later, cut to years later, Devani is now about 12. Um, my marriage is over and my daughter lives with me and we're invited to a Seder by Ellie and Saul and we go to the Seder and she says, I say, what can I bring? And she says, bring dessert. So in my innocence, <laughs> I, bring, I bring the best donuts on the planet. <laughs> Now, people should know a Passover Seder, which means order, but a Passover dinner, which the Last Supper was, uh, is there is to be no leavened bread, no cakes, no uh, pasta. None of these things are no, no donuts, no donuts for sure. However, (laughs) unless they're Tim's, then they're okay. No, no, no donuts. However, Ellie and Saul and everybody just had the greatest laugh and we ate the donuts because, of course, the purpose is not what you eat. The purpose is what you honor. Absolutely. Um, so mind you, for my mother, that would have been not true. It yes, would have been, I'm sure. Get that out of here now and take that guy with him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. But Mississippi, M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I, what? What compelled you? Was it the communist sense of social justice? Well, it was the teaching of social justice. To me, it had nothing to do with communism. You know, I'm neither a communist nor a capitalist. I'm a human being. I'm Paul. I, I believe that goodness is the path. I believe all you need is love is true. I think it's a law of physics. Um, I think love makes the world go round is a law of physics. We don't, we mess it up quite a bit as we see. 
But what happened was that I came out of my, you know, when I was 21, I believed in social justice, but I believed in do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And in the summer of 64, I was sitting in Toronto watching the TV news as the tragedy of the three civil rights workers, Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner unfolded. These three kids who were summer volunteers with SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was a leading edge youth civil rights organization and movement in America and mainly in the South. And these three kids went missing and it turned out they'd been executed by the Ku Klux Klan with the help of the local sheriff and deputy sheriff. If you go deeper, you find out that the collaboration or the conspiracy included the governor of Mississippi. The governor of Mississippi was part of it at a distance to right. keep a, to keep clean hands. Right. But, and as I watched this news unfolding over 64 days, I just was horrified. I remember being horrified. And that's what really motivated me the next summer to volunteer and go south. Wow. Fantastic. Now, when you say love is the law of physics, what do you mean by that? Well, I like science a great deal. To me, science is not separate from spirituality. To me, science, as I understand it, this is how I hold it in my heart. Science is repeated occurrences that can be somewhat predicted. Newton sees the apple fall from the tree. He sees it fall again. It keeps falling and it keeps seeming to fall in the same way. And Newton figures out, oh, there's got to be a force pulling it. Why didn't it just drift off into the sky when it released from the tree? So Newton figures out there's a force and he actually figures out how you calculate that force. And ergo, we have the law of gravity. So all that is, is all science is, is, is experimental observation that you go deeper and deeper and you find solutions. They're trying to find a COVID vaccine, the science of finding something that generates a resistance in the body to beat a disease. So science to me is not at all separate from spirituality. Spirituality is the same thing to me. Do I experience joy? Do I experience love? How do I get there? You know, I mean, when I heard the reason the Beatles are important to me was two things. One, the joy of their music that we dance to at our parties. Right? All you need is love. And all those, you know, all those wonderful rock and roll songs that they, that they sang. And their secret, in my opinion, was that joy, which is why 50 years later, you know, we're still, young generations are still discovering them. What draws them? What's the science of that in my language? The right. science of that is they're drawn by the gravity pull of joy. Okay. So when I say the science of things, I mean behavior, behavior in the universe. And love seems to be the most powerful force in the universe. You know, you can. That's so interesting to me because I'm, I, I'm in the middle of a draft of my book and I got, I just wrote before we did this that when people say God is love, I have, I have a problem with that idea that if, if God is unknowable and it's not a Disney character and it's not Santa Claus, it doesn't have that relationship with me. 
then how is it love? I see it as interconnectivity with an ecosystem of the universe that we're part of that we float through in atomized versions forever. But I don't, I, I can't walk the bridge over to that's because of love. So help well, me with that. Well, my, that's beautiful what you're saying, by the way. What I, what it, what I, what it means to me, how I hold it, how I constellate it, is everything I've experienced in my life that's positive is loving. Everything. A person smiling. A person, I just came out of the shopper's drug mart at Hopedale Mall, and I had literally my arms full. And a woman, she probably was in her 40s with a mask, and I have a mask, she sees me coming. She's already through the open door. She steps back, holds the door for me. I say, thank you very much. As I move through, she moves to the next door, because there's two, and she opens that for me. And I say, thank you so much. Now, what is that? What is that? Well, we can interpret that as obligation. Maybe somebody taught her you had to do that. I don't know. I interpret it as kindness. And I think kindness is a facet of love. Absolutely. Kindness is a facet of love. One of the other things my mom and dad taught me in the same vein of do unto others, and I don't know whether it was my father or my mother, and I think it, might, I think it was my father, he said to me, when I was also in my early teens, besides punching me in the face, he said some good things to me. He said, if you are walking down the street and you see a drunk lying in the gutter, before you step over and keep going, ask yourself what you would want if you were that drunk. Now, that's fucking brilliant. Excuse the language. No, no. What a, you're, The more you tell me about your father, I, I just... I can't even imagine all the different feelings that would go through a person saying, occasionally they tell me something that I can carry through life to make me a better person. And yet they freight me with this trauma of their own that makes them one of the things I fear in my life and that I never want to become. Mm -hmm. Like it, it's so ironic, the, 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 the narratives and how they collide with each other. I want to get yeah. to, I want to get to, well, you, I still don't know how that means God is love, but I'll, I'll, well, I'll, I'll, I'll work on that. Do you have an... Yeah, you yeah, to... yeah. Why don't, we, why don't we take the word God? I don't like the word God on its own. And the reason yeah. I don't like the word God on its own is, and I work with a lot of young people, and I say, you know, God is not a guy. <laughs> Absolutely. God is not a guy. <laughs> well, I, there's a book called God is a Verb by Rabbi David Cooper. Uh, a lot of it is about Kabbalah uh, and mysticism. It's a wonderful book, but his basic premise is God is not a noun. It's yeah. not a thing. God is an action. Well, and I think, I think I agree with that. And the way I would say it in my language is, instead of saying the word God, I always say God, goddess, being the masculine and feminine sides of divine, right. of divine energy. So if you think of the divine energy... What is it? Well, I think it's all pure love. What we do with it is where the Judeo-Christian tradition gets it really right, which is there is free will. Let's go with God, God has created the world, whatever that means. And we could parse that, but let's not parse it right now. God, God has created the world. 
and gave human beings free will. So you can have unlimited, and, and one of the great teachers in consciousness I worked with in the late 80s said it, 80s said it this way. He said, the energy of Christ and the energy of Hitler is the same energy. They used it in different ways. Right. So God, goddess, makes unlimited energy available to us. There's no end to creativity. It's infinite. There's no end to love. It's infinite. There's no end to energy. This is Einstein. I love science. I love Einstein. Energy cannot be created or destroyed. E equals MC squared. So if energy can't be created or destroyed, it's a question of how you use it with that free will. Do yes. you want yeah. Do yeah. you want to do you want to pet that dog, that little sweet dog? Do you want to hold it and caress it and feel love filling your heart and the dog feels love filling your heart? Or do you want to smack it and tell it to get off your lap? Bang. Same we're, back, we're back to your father again. <laughs> but is he going to pet you or is he going to punch you? What a horrible thing. All right, I want to figure this out. Um you're in your 20s, you wake up in Montreal and you think this is not, I don't, I don't feel like me. I don't, I'm not even sure I know who I'm talking about at this point. And I don't think you're alone in that. I certainly had that moment, a very sad moment, because it, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, who will live and who will die? I will live and I will die. So that, that Saltzman dies right there. Yeah. And now you, you go into, you're reborn into the next journey. And so that journey takes you to India. Yeah. So what happened was, and, and, and what's exciting to me is, you see, we're all, we're all little tender bunnies, <laughs> you know, human beings are a incredible species and we're such a fragile species. We're such a strong species. We're such a resilient species and we're such a fragile species. And there's 8 billion psyches in the world and every psyche is beyond unique. And we try and navigate this obstacle course called life. And we can go into the obstacle course in two different ways. We can go in with positive psychology or negative psychology. We can go in with the positive ego, sense of self, mm. not, not inflated ego. I'm the, right. I'm, I'm the greatest. One of the things that's happening in America right now is a result of a country that said to itself since inception, we're the land of the free and we're the greatest. Well, Ralph, if you believed you were the greatest or I believed I was the greatest, we would learn nothing. We have nothing to learn from anybody. We're already the greatest. Right. And what's happening in America now is it's coming to grips with its own psycho history, meaning psychological history. We're the it, land of the free. It's never yeah. been the land of the free. No, no. It's a disease of exceptionalism, and it, it can permeate anything. You can be in a group of Jewish people who will start telling you that more Nobel Prize winners per capita than anyone. You can be in America, and, and you know, by the time that national anthem is finished, you are ready to go to war. I mean, I think they've literally had nine years where they haven't been at war with someone. Yeah. Uh, and then, so those... Like you said, it's free will. You know, when people say, oh, religion is a horrible thing, I go, no, no, what people do with religion can be a horrible thing or it can be the best thing. What people do with, with a, a camera can cause great harm or cause great joy. It's really always well, a choice. Right? And there's a huge and there's a huge difference, as you know, 
between religion and spirituality. Spirituality, as I understand it, and this was a gift from one of my guides in life. He said, you know, Paul, spirituality is simply your relationship with your spirit. It has nothing to do with anybody else. Somebody can tell you how to be spiritual. They can try and control you and your spirituality. They can say, if you don't come to church and doven four times a day or say Hail Mary three times and fill in any version, then you're not going to be okay. But that's just a well, sad... I always Yeah, but I always say that spirituality is a relationship to yourself, to others, the I and thou relationship, yep. and to the universe. But religion yeah. is a fitness program, <laughs> right? So, you know, Sabbath, a Shabbat is a Shabbat. Now, if you're an observant person, you don't think, gee, I wonder if I'll do it this Friday. You're going to do it this Friday, and you're going to do it for 25 hours. Now, doing that, and re you need, it's like meditative practice. You can think, it would be great if I was meditating every day. I just know it would. I'm not going to do it. I just can't bring myself to do it. You know, we self-sabotage the things that could make us elevate our spiritual life. So the, the idea, the rigor of religion is not appreciated in a neoliberal world where nobody tells you what to do, right? Yeah, but on yeah. the other hand, without a spiritual discipline, the spiritual life is harder to access on a regular basis. And, you know, when we were 22, we could take mushrooms or acid and just get a shortcut and a little glimpse of it and go, oh, right, the cosmic joke, I get it. And then we go right back to the mundane material world and feel like crap the next day because it took so much psychic energy for us to take the journey. I, I, I don't want to, I want, I want to get to a few more things. We could, obviously you and I could do this for a while. Um, let's go to India. You're, you're in Montreal and you're realizing I got to get out of here. Uh, and then from inside you hear, I'm going to India. So what were you hoping to find when you got there? So, so I want to back up just for a second. So I'm a non-believer uh, in that moment. I wake up in my rented room. I have the shocking thought that there are parts of myself I don't like. I swing my legs over the edge of the bed. I remember this like it was four minutes ago. I swing my legs over the edge of the bed and I say out loud without thinking, and that's the key, without thinking. This is a brilliant computer. It's a shitty guidance system. The heart is a wonderful guidance system. It's a shitty computer. One of the most evolved humans I ever met simply said to me one day, he said, you know, if I had to sum up all my books and all my teachings and all my seminars into one sentence, I'd say it's all about integrating the head and the heart. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. So, but that's science to me, science, integrating the head and the heart. So then the question is, how do you do it? So I wake up that morning. I think there are parts of myself I don't like. I swing my legs over the edge of the bed and I say out loud without thinking, what do I do about this? And I hear my soul talk to me for the first time in my life. I do not believe in a soul. <laughs> I do not believe in a soul. No God, no spirit, no soul. That's what I was taught. What I hear is a deep inner voice that's not my voice, and it's truly all loving and all calming and all reassuring. Can you imagine that feeling of being all loved and all reassured and all calm? And in that moment, this is what the voice said, and I quote, it said, well, Paul, if you really want to look at yourself more carefully, you might want to get away from the environment you grew up in. 
And I say out loud in this strange conversation without thinking, I say out loud, where do I go? And my soul says, India, end of the conversation. Now I have no connection with India, meditation, mysticism. I know none of this stuff, but I get myself to India. And I say goodbye to my girlfriend, Trisha, and we both cry a lot because I don't want to leave her and I'm scared. I've never been out of North America. I don't know where I'm going. What am I going to do? She cries a lot. She doesn't want me to leave. And I go to India and I pay my ticket by working on, a, on an NFB film doing sound recording. And I get there and two things happen. The first is, to my surprise, my body opens up in a way it had never been. My heart and body open up in the heat and the calm and something that's otherworldly. Okay? Previous lifetime had to be in India or something. I find this inner peace that I've never had. And the second thing is I work on the film and I get to Delhi and I excitedly open my first letter from Trisha and it says, Dear Paul, I've moved in with Henry. That was the first line. And I was devastated. I was shattered. Somebody said, why don't you try meditation for the heartbreak? I knew nothing about meditation. He said, I'm going to hear the Maharishi speak at New Delhi University tonight, the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, an Indian holy person. And I don't know who that is. And he says, do you want to come? And I say, I'll try anything. So we go. Um, the Maharishi says, talks for an hour and a half. I remember nothing except two or three sentences, but it's exactly why I was in the room. He said, and I quote, he said, meditation takes you beneath and below your daily worries and concerns to a place of inner rejuvenation from which you come back renewed and refreshed. And I think that's what I need. Isn't that interesting? Because the idea that in most Judeo-Christian imagery is above, not beneath and below, but that the spiritual practice will take you above to the heavens, to, to the consciousness that rises, you know. So that, that language to me is so interesting because I, w I wouldn't hear that in a church or a synagogue, I don't think, that you'd go beneath or below. I, I love that. This all started for me in a Beatles song. And when I look back in 1966 with Trisha, I rushed down to Sam the Record Man on Young Street. <laughs> I buy Revolver because Ooh, it's a great I, album. Great album. And I already know that if you're not there on the first day, you won't, it'll sell out and you have to wait three weeks. Yeah, so yeah, I, yeah. I rush down, I get into the lineup and <laughs> I buy Revolver. I go back, I take a little stereo out on the lawn from a rented house in the Eglinton and Bathurst area. I remember a yellow extension cord and <laughs> I put on Tomorrow Never Knows. Patricia and I had both smoked a joint and that was in the days that marijuana was so light. Yeah, I yeah. I haven't smoked for years and years and years and years. It's so strong. It doesn't do it. Yeah, it would knock you on your bum. I, I don't do it anymore. But $20 yeah. for an ounce and half of it was sticks and twigs and shake. <laughs> and you get sure. a headache if you smoke more than one joint. Yeah, and you could. This from Mexico. It's got pesticides in it. <laughs> I, I don't like this feeling. I, I feel I'm nauseous. I'm feeling nauseous. Yeah, but if but if you had if you had good marijuana in the '60s, it was just such a light, gentle exploration of consciousness and joy. Yeah. And and you know, so we had smoked a joint and lay down on the grass, and her, her head's on my shoulder, and we're listening to Revolver, and the last song comes, Tomorrow Never Knows, 
and they're singing, turn off your mind and float downstream. It is not dying. It is not dying. Go towards the light. It is shining. It is shining. The song ends. And the first thought in my mind is, what are they talking about? <laughs> and the second thought on my mind is, well, if they're talking about something real, it's something my parents and my teachers have never spoken to me about. Yeah, yeah. And the third thought in my mind, honestly, this is how it happened, is, well, it feels like they're talking about something real. It feels like it. Right. A little while later, I, I read a little bit about Christ, right? I'm not in religious practice. I'm not in religious school. But I read a little bit about Christ. And I read that Christ said the kingdom of heaven is within you. And I stop and I thought, what does that mean? Because if there's a kingdom of heaven within me, I want to know it. And I want to know how to get there. So that was 1966. That all sort of goes away in busyness and life. And in 68, I'm listening to the Maharishi talk, and I think that's what I need. So I went to his ashram in Rishikesh. By the way, I was in such an old a state. I was in devastation. I was in heartbreak. I could hardly keep from crying. It was that kind of a, yeah, really, yeah. a really rough heartbreak. So I buy a ticket to go to Rishikesh. I go to the counter in Delhi station and I say, I'm like a ticket to Rishikesh. They sell me a ticket. I'm on the train and I see the sign for Rishikesh go by at high speed. <laughs> Excuse me. Hello. Excuse me. The, 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 that was not crap. That's right. That's right. You either you either get off at you either get off at the stop before Rishikesh because you know it doesn't stop at Rishikesh, which is uh, which is Hardwar, or you get off at the stop after Rishikesh, which is Dehradun. So I get off at the stop. I find my way to the Maharishi's ashram, and I say I've come to learn meditation. And the lovely man who comes to speak to me says, "I'm sorry, the ashram is closed because the Beatles and their wives are." I was a fan. I saw them at Maple Leaf Gardens in 64, but I it was not good news. They were at the ashram. It was not who, good wait, news. Who opened for them? Was it the, the circle with red rubber ball or was it uh, Sunny? Thank you for... I don't, one of the two, cause, cause I my don't sister, remember. My sister went. She was three years older than me and she went to the 64 concert and I was just like, oh my God, you're actually going to see the Beatles. I just saw them on Ed Sullivan. This is so amazing. All right, sorry. Okay, so you're there and they're going, uh, now it's turning into sort of a Yosemite Sam kind of Looney Tunes moment of, get out of here, you're not allowed in. It's well, the Wizard very... of Oz, you've gone to the Emerald City and they said, <laughs> go away, the wizard won't see you. All right. Well, <laughs> it wasn't It wasn't quite like that, but it was the, but it was the same as that. Yeah, exactly. So he, Raghavendra was his name, a beautiful man. He was. He turned out to be my angel. And he said, I'm sorry the Beatles closed because the, the, the ashrams closed as the Beatles and their wives are here. And I said, can I wait? Because I didn't know what else to say. And he was a little taken aback. And he said, oh, okay. He said, there's two tents across the path under the trees. The first one is used by the tailor from the town below. He comes up every day and makes the clothes you saw the Beatles wear in, in the photographs. He said, the other tent's empty. You're welcome to sleep there. And we'll send you our simple vegetarian meals. This man was my angel. Yeah. I had a sleeping bag. I waited outside the gates for eight days. I finally was allowed in. I was taught meditation. Raghavendra taught me meditation. It took five minutes. I did a first meditation of 30 minutes. I came out of the meditation and it was an absolute miracle. The agony, the agony, the agony, agony was gone 
in one 30 minute meditation. I still had a heartbreak to deal with. I still loved somebody who supposedly didn't want me, but the agony was gone in one 30 minute meditation. It was like, who knew? Who yeah. knew? yeah. So maybe, incredible. maybe that's the Maharishi saying beneath and below is the going inside. But through going inside, you in fact connect with the divine. I came out of the meditation, I walked out of the room, and I was in a state of bliss. I was stoned. Right. In a state of bliss. And before that, you had been yearning for something outside of you that wasn't that you couldn't reconcile yourself to losing. Right? Yep. And you're thinking, when I get my hands on that Henry guy. <laughs> and then beneath it is the real, I mean, the, the gate to spirituality is heartbreak, right? You know, in the Jewish tradition in Yom Kippur, you literally knock on your chest over and over again and, and, and you know, tell people, tell yourself your imperfection and your lack of good aim, as it were, not sin, but lack of good aim. Uh, but without that broken heart, uh, we often lack the humility to bend our knee to our existence, right? Right. Where our arrogance will, will go and we will say, that fucking Henry guy, screw you, Trish, you know, you should have treated, and all that is just the yada, yada, yada of the ego saying, you hurt me, you hurt me, you hurt me, I'll, you know, I don't know what to do. And then in 30 minutes, you found another path, another journey. So and I, I just want to go ahead. I, remember what you were going to say? Yeah, I just Okay, I just want to add something because it comes back to what you started with or what we were talking about, about love. So I come out of the meditation, I'm in a state of bliss. And later, George Harrison said to me, he, all, he gets higher meditating than he ever did on drugs. And I knew what he meant. I just experienced it two days right. before. But I come out in a state of bliss and the thought in my mind about Tricia is genuinely, well, if she's happier with Henry, I'm glad she's with him. My love took a turn from being possessive and needy mm -hmm. to in loving Trisha, if she's truly happier with Henry, I was glad she was with him. And I really meant it. You realize that's a, a song by Bread. I found your diary underneath the tree, started reading about me. And then he realizes it's not him. Uh -oh. He's actually writing, <laughs> the words you had to say were someone else, not me. Wouldn't you know it? You wouldn't show it. And then she wishes them a good life. He oh, wishes wow. them love. Yeah, so beautiful. Bread was, bread was the, like the thing you're not supposed to like, right? You're supposed to be listening to hot tuna jam albums, but you're not supposed to be liking that. You've got you a know? great, you've got a great voice. Thank you for that serenade. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, so we should talk about the thing that in, in would fascinate anyone, of course, which is being the touchstone that they are for humanity at this point. The Beatles did you have what was your feeling as you started to intermingle with them did you think oh my god this is unbelievable or did you just think can i just join you guys to sit down and eat you're 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 phrasing that in a very correct way because you're using the word think so again wonderful computer shitty guidance system great guidance system shitty <laughs> computer I come out of the meditation, I'm in a state of bliss. They are not in my mind at all. 
they are not in my mind. It's as if they weren't there. I'm just so relieved not to be in agony. And I'm walking through the ashram, which isn't that big. And there's trees and there's a few monkeys and there's beautiful parakeets that are flying in flocks through the trees. And I'm just in this state of bliss. And I see at one point I look over to my right and I see like 150 feet away John Lennon and he's sitting at a table by the edge of the cliff overlooking the Ganges and I can tell that Paul is sitting opposite him I can just see the back of Paul's head and the side of his face but you recognize him and here's what actually happened without thinking yay without thinking I just find myself curving towards him literally I just observe Oh, I'm curving towards them <laughs> in this altered state. I get halfway to them and I notice very calmly, I notice, oh, my heart's beating a little faster, but I'm not, I'm not attached to it. I'm in this altered state. I get to the end of the table and there's John and Paul and George and Ringo and Cynthia, John's wife, Patty, George's wife, Maureen, Ringo's wife, Jane Asher, Paul's girlfriend. Donovan, Mia Farrow, and Mike Love of the Beach Boys, and Mal Evans, the Beatles, Roadie. There's 12 of them sitting at this long table, and I'm at the end of it, standing. And I don't say anything, because I don't want to interrupt. And it's not a thought. I'm just very calm. You're present. I'm present, thank you. And then they realize somebody's standing there, so they stop talking, and John looks up at me, and I just say, complete, calm, altered state. May I join you? He says, sure, mate, pull up a chair. Paul turns to me and says, come and sit here. And he pulls a chair down at the end of the table. And I sit down and three magical things happen. And I want to just diverge for five seconds. I found myself using the word magic and magical about 10 years ago in a particular way. So I go to the big Oxford etymological dictionary and I look up the word magic and I realize as, as I go down meanings, one, two, three, four, that the meaning number one is the most common usage. And there's 25 meanings, which would be number 25 would be the least common. And down around 23 or 24, I find exactly what I'm looking for. And it says, quote, magic, that which is real, but we as yet do not understand. Hmm. That which is real, but we as yet do not understand. So three magical things happen when I sit down. The first is, as soon as my bum literally hits the seat, to my shock, I hear a scream in here. Eek, it's the Beatles. <laughs> I never have said that in my whole life. I never <laughs> screamed it. I never screamed when I was at Maple Leaf Gardens in 64. I'm just like this, trying to hear the words over all the 18,000 yeah, yeah, fans yeah. screaming. As soon as that voice finished, before I had a chance to think, and this is, this is what I realized afterwards, looking back at the experience. The gift of not thinking. Thinking can take us away from our heart. It usually does. It often does. Mm -hmm. So I hear the scream in my head. And before I have a chance to think, I hear my soul for the second time in my life. And it says, quote, hey, Paul, they're just ordinary people like you. Everyone farts and is afraid in the night. <laughs> That's what it said. And from that moment, I spent a week sitting with them. I never thought of getting an autograph. I never thought of getting a picture with them. They took me into their group, and I'll tell you why, because it's the third part of the magic. So as soon as the soul finishes talking, before I have a chance to think, 
John turns to me, <laughs> and in his inimitable, wry, digging, teasing, playful, very smart wit, he says to me, and it's not a compliment, it's about the Yanks being inferior to the Brits. He says to me, so you're American then. And he's not being, he's, he's toying with me, but yeah, he's yeah. not being complimentary. And I say, no, Canadian. And he, sa- he turns to the rest of the group and he says, ah, he's from one of the colonies. Now we're, <laughs> now we're all laughing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he turns back to me and he says in that same digging wit, he says, so you're still worshiping her highness then. And I say, <laughs> I say, no, not personally. Then Paul and Ringo start teasing me about having the queen on our money. And I say, and again, in this altered state of bliss, completely at ease, the Beatles have gone away. The soul spoke. The fan came out. The soul spoke. The, the fan went away. The Beatles right. went away. Right. I say back to them, well, we may have the queen on our money, but hey, she lives with you guys. <laughs> now we're all laughing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and John turns back to the rest of the group and he says, ah, you see, he still, have a, he still has a, or they still have a sense of humor in the colonies. And that was it. They just took me into their group. I could have spent a month with them. I spent a week with them. I could have taken a thousand pictures because they said they didn't mind. I took 54 pictures with anyone famous, probably about 35 of them have a beetle in it. I didn't think of it. I literally didn't think. So I took out my camera twice in a week because I didn't. Yeah. Do they still have a place in you, any of them? Is there something of the magic of, because these are four people who seem to have understood, they had a sense of, of, irony about their lives. They seem to understand that this is just one hell of a crazy ride. Um, So I always appreciated that about them, but they were on a spiritual journey too. They were trying to really become themselves and not get lost in, you know, a tsunami of what others thought of who they were. Right, Right. Is there... So when things happen like George Harrison dies or John Lennon dies, what, what did anything happen to you in those moments? Yeah, but I yes, and I but I don't know that it was any different from people who hadn't met them. When when John Lennon died, I was shocked. I was angry. I was um, in tears um, that I met this beautiful man, and with me, he was only beautiful. With me, mm-hmm. he was only generous and kind and compassionate and loving and playful for a week. So for me, this was this was a, a remarkably loving, loving and lovely human being. So you know, I cried with grief. I was angry. The you know the dumb schmuck who shot him. What were you thinking? Right? Blah blah blah. Yeah. And I was I was sad. I was very sad. I was very sorry. And I I was sad that he lost his life. That his family yeah, it, lost him. The man who who killed him uh, had a parole hearing recently, uh, John Hinckley, and he said, "I'm ashamed of myself." Chapman. Chapman. I mean, Um, uh, I'm ashamed of myself. I wanted to be famous. That's what I wanted. That's why I killed him, and I live with that. So that's a sad thing. It seemed like everybody of those those Beatles. It looked like to me from many millions of 
light years away, that George Harrison was the one who was there for the long haul and that the others were searching for something, but they weren't going to find it there. Am I, I wrong think, about that? Well, I think, I, I don't know that you're wrong. I, I would put it slightly differently. In that period of time, what I learned when I was with them was they were four brothers. Like I say in the film, they were like that. And you could actually feel as if they were an inner circle of four brothers and the partners, the women partners, they were, they were close with their women partners, but you could sense that that was a circle just a little bit out from the inner circle right. of the four of them. And, and what I understand from Jenny Boyd when she was in my film, Patty's sister was there, um, that in that period of time, they did everything together, you know? George wants to go to India to learn meditation. They, they wanted to go, Patty and George wanted to go hear the Maharishi speak at the Hilton Hotel a couple years before. Well, then all the Beatles are going to come because there's right. this interesting thing and they're four brothers. They're a band of brothers. So right, they're going right. to go off together. So my understanding is that that was part of what was operating with the four of them going to India. George was without question from what we know and read and I experienced the most um, devoted to meditation, but so was John. Mm. And, and even after the falling out with the Maharishi, John meditated years later, his children were taught TM, um, transcendental meditation. Uh, Paul, I think was, was, was serious about it, but probably less so just my sense of it in terms of what he talked about and what he said, but they were all there looking for something. They were all there looking to evolve. What to about evolve. Ringo? I, he was, I mean, he meditated too. I don't know anything more than that. Um, when he went home, um, I actually left at the same time. Uh, Mal Evans, their roadie called two taxis. One was to take Ringo and Maureen with Mal down to Delhi and the other was to take me and two friends of Donovan's who had come a couple of days before and needed a ride back to Delhi. And I remember walking to the two taxis with Ringo and I said, hey, how come you guys are leaving? And he said, we're missing the kids and Maureen doesn't like the flies. Now, the, the, the mythology became that Ringo had food problems. Well, he did have digestive problems apparently from the age of six, but that's not what he said. He right. said... They were missing the kids, and and Maureen was didn't like the flies. I think Ringo came as part of the band of brothers, and right. whatever whatever he got from it and took away in terms of meditation, I don't know. He and Paul today support the David Lynch Foundation, right. which teaches meditation worldwide to disadvantaged children, to to inmates in prisons, to homeless people, and to anyone else. So Paul and Ringo certainly support meditation and the teaching of meditation through the David Lynch Foundation. Do, do you meditate still on a regular I me, basis? I, I don't do it on a regular basis. I don't have that kind of discipline. If I'm making a film, I have super discipline, right? right. I don't have that kind of discipline, but I, I do two things. I have two methods of meditation, and I use them each about once a week. But in between... I talk to my higher self every day. So mm -hmm. that soul that showed up, that soul that showed up in my bedroom in Montreal mm -hmm. when I was 23, I still 
have an intimate relationship with my soul, my higher self. I use that language. How do you keep that channel open for your, to yourself? It's, it, the, this is the thing that's so incredible. It's easy. We humans, you know, we humans create so much strife where we don't need strife. We create so much anti-love, the opposite of love, in our struggle to get to love. And, and part of it is what we've been taught, right? Part of it is we've been taught by certain people that we need them to get to God. We need right. their ritual to get to God. Hey, if it helps you, great. No, no negative. But the truth is that you need nobody between you and God because it is, in fact, an intimate one-to-one -one relationship, you to your... And again, you don't like the word God in a certain way, and I say God, goddess. But, you know, that old adage, God is... Or God, I'll say God, goddess. God, goddess is love. That is all you know and all you need to know. If we don't use the word God thinking of us a person, Right. God isn't a guy and he's not a white guy and he's not a, <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Well, there's a few white guys who think that they are God. Well, this is our problem is that for all of us, that, that tendency in the human fear cycle is to be, to try to become God. So, because God then can control all around and be all powerful and all seeing. So and, here's the, here's the contradiction. Right. When we go for control, it's the opposite of intimacy. The opposite of intimacy is control. The opposite of control is not being out of control. The opposite of control is being in the flow, allowing right. the energy to flow. And, and I, what I would say is the most important thing I've learned in my whole life, and I still am learning, and I work on it, if not every day, whenever I think of it. The most important thing I've learned in my whole life is to open my heart and receive. Just receive receive the blessings of others in my life, receive the love of people who are my friends or my partner or my daughter, to receive that love that comes from divine presence, just to receive. Yeah, there's the, the Hebrew word hineni, I am here, right? Because people are always saying, well, where's God? Prove God, where's God? And it's just, it's not where is God, it's where am I? Right, cool. because if, if I'm cool. not if I'm not present, then it it matters not what I think. And presence is the only place where availability is offered, because the past is 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 a collage, you know, and, and the future hasn't happened. So you've only got the moment. So one more thing before we go, joy. You've mentioned joy, and I I want to know what place joy has in your life. Well, I am happy to say that I have more joy in my life in a given day today than I used to have in a month or six months. You know, what I did when I, what I did when I got married and I married twice, the first time I married my father completely. And the second time I married half of my father. I was, <laughs> I was learning. I was, I was evolving. Yeah. And then, then through my own therapy and my own growth and my own inner, inner, uh, reflection and my own connection with with my soul and divine presence um, i i met the woman of my dream seven and a half years ago and she is the most joyful human i've ever met naturally but naturally by choice in other words when we can focus on the negative 
she learns from it, but she chooses to focus on the positive. You know, it's it's the way the way she does it is if we need to go from here to here, we can do it through the modality of struggle or we can do it through the modality of love. We can do it through the modality of of fear, which is struggle, or we can do it through the modality of receiving and and navigating. So you have to navigate from here to there. You still have to go from A to B in your life. You're here. You want this. You can do it struggling, 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 or maybe you can do it by receiving it, by receiving it. Right. So, so joy, what part it plays in my life is whenever I allow it in, and that's really what I mean, whenever I allow it in, right. it's, always, it's always there. Now, I learned something from one of my spiritual teachers, which was, very, I, love, I love the science of things, and I love the science of things, because it helps me. It helps me. It reduces pain. It reduces confusion. It reduces struggle. So one of the things I learned in this regard is that, and he said it to me one day, he said, you know, Paul, happiness is not the same as joy. He said, happiness is having your needs fulfilled, and it's an emotion. Joy is having your preferences fulfilled. And joy is not an emotion. It's actually a state of positive chaos, light chaos, as opposed to dark chaos. So what is that? What did I learn from that science? I learned, okay, I need to have my, I need to have my needs fulfilled. I need to eat. I need to sleep. I need to stay warm enough. I need to fill the car with gas. I better have my needs fulfilled. And that does bring happiness. But then what are my preferences? And if I fulfill my preferences, that brings joy. And joy is a state, like I said in my film, joy was what I noticed with the Beatles when they were working on Obla Di Obla Da. And I'm sitting beside Ringo and I'm looking across five feet to Paul and John playing their guitars and they're singing Obla Di Obla Da, Bra La La, How the Life Goes On. And they're singing it over and over again. And after a moment, they paused and Paul looked up at me and he said, that's all there is so far. We don't have any of the words yet. And they went back to it. Well, what I noticed was joy. Joy was pouring out of them. Joy was, they were in play, right. like, like children, right? Children right. play, children have so much joy. So, yeah. And an artist needs that child to be alive in them to access that joy. Well, every human being, not just artists. Yes, but for the artist, I think sometimes that age becomes less of an issue, for instance, because there's an agelessness that's baked into the recipe of, of accessing that child in yourself and being being an artist. That, and if that dries up, you're done. There's nothing left to say. I, would, I agree with you, but I would add something. I think we're all artists, all yes. of us. Yes. And, and one of the ways we're all artists is we actually create the life we live through our choices, by what we do, and by what we allow. So if you take a blank canvas, Ralph Bermungi's canvas of life, or Paul Saltzman's, or Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, or John Lennon's canvas of life, we each get to paint the life. Now, we can be victims and say, well, I really didn't get to paint it. This happened to me, and that happened to me. And sure, my father did punch me in the face. I didn't make that happen. I didn't invite that. Whatever I did, I was sassy. Whatever happened that he felt enraged to punch his child in the face viciously. We're not talking about, yeah, viciously. Because when you lose it, right, it's like that. 
So we all get to create our life. We're all artists, every one of us. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. I often think of life as a, life is your prayer. You are constructing your prayer through your life. Beautiful. I agree. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, the film is called? Meeting the Beatles in India. And how are people going to, there's already a book that was, yep. in what, 2001, that book came out? So 2000, the, the, yeah. Yeah, so the, how do people get to see the, the movie, the film? Um, the, the easiest way is go to my website, which is thebeetlesinindia.com, simply thebeetlesinindia.com, and you'll see a bunch of icons. You can click on one of them. It says Meeting the Beatles in India, and it's actually the poster for the film. This marvelous artist in, in Montreal did a brilliant poster for the film, which I couldn't be more tickled with. So there's a there is an icon on the website, and you click on that, and it'll take you to the platform where you can view the film. I just had this uh, scriptwriter's moment where the guy who did the uh, the cover is Henry's kid. <laughs> I I don't. I don't know. Did they whatever. ever stay together, or or did they just split? Not only not only did they not stay together, but in the <laughs> in the realm of the science of psyche, I go back to Delhi after learning meditation. The same guy who introduced me to meditation, who took me to hear the Maharishi speak, said, "I have a I have a guru. Do you want to come meet him?" I say, "Sure." We go to this relatively simple home, and there's this man in his sixties who is. Uh, um, clearly joyful. And he says, you've been going through a lot. I say, yes. I said, he said, what happened? I said, well, my girlfriend wrote me a letter. Dear Paul, I've moved in with Henry. He says, she's not with him anymore. Wow. And I'm going, do I believe that? The truth was he was correct. He could sense that in the realm of psychic, psychic perception. Wow. So she, so she wasn't with Henry anymore. We never got back together. We were just, I would say we were too young. We had too much pain in the memory of that ripping apart. And we just passed like two ships in the night. However, you, when, I, when, I found, when I found my pictures, which my dear daughter Deviani reminded me of, it's all in the movie. It's, it was wonderful to tell the story. Because yeah, I, I can include my daughter without whom none of it would exist, right? Because I, I forgot about the pictures for 32 years till she reminded me of them. So we did, I did a, a gallery show. I did the book, and then I was asked to do a gallery show. And so my first gallery show in the world was in Toronto, King and Jarvis Street. And I invite Tricia and her husband, who I know, who I knew, and their four kids, and we're jammed into this big gallery space, and it's like 300 people. It's a wonderful opening, and we're standing in the middle of this, and I say to Patricia, I say to, to Tricia, I say, I really have to thank you. Without you, none of this would exist. And we <laughs> exactly. All, we all had a great laugh. Exactly. I was just thinking that while sure. you were saying it is that she did have a, a role in your life, an important role in your life. Completely. And, and without that heartbreak, you wouldn't have had that moment. Exactly. She had, a, she had a life-changing impact on my life, both positively as loving me and negatively by dumping me, which turned <laughs> into a big positive. <laughs> well, you know, we, we, we often 
you know, there was a, a, a mist, what was she, an intuitive, a medical intuitive, who, uh, Carolyn Miss, uh, who wrote a, some books. And one of her things was, in life often, we don't know we need it, but we get to a point, even in a job, where somebody inside of you is saying, look, are you going to quit? Or do you want me to get you fired? <laughs> because you can't do it yourself, right? right? Right. And then you get yourself, next thing you know, you're being fired because you just couldn't jump. But, you know, the other part is when you jump, you grow wings on the way down. So it's not that's that beautiful. Bad, right? That's beautiful. That's so beautiful. That's, that's the thing it is. Paul, I want to thank you very much for doing this with me. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for thank you. opening thank yourself you. up to me and, and, and the candor. Uh, a beautiful journey. I, I'm so happy for you. And uh, I, the Beatles to me are like, that's fine. That's great. <laughs> but just, you know, what you've done and, and, and the things that you could have turned into a, a bowl of sadness and tears became a joy. And uh, I, I bless the love you have for your partner, for your daughter, for your work, Thank uh, you. and for yourself. I think it's beautiful. Thank you very much. And the same to you. Thank you. Blessings. Blessings. You take care of yourself, okay? Thank you. You as well. Okay. I'm Ralph Benmergi. This is not that kind of rabbi. If you want to get in touch with me, I have a website, kavanah.ca, K-A-V-A-N-A-H.ca. Uh, I offer spiritual counseling for people. They do it all the time. Uh, occasionally do workshops. I have a new one coming up on aging to saging at the end of October. So I'll be posting that. Uh, and you can go to my Facebook page, um, Not That Kind of Rabbi, is a page. I think I just set up a donation thing there. So if you feel like helping me, uh, that would be great because I love doing this and I want to keep doing it. In the meantime, you all take care of each other and take care of yourselves and uh, be safe and be healthy in this chaotic and upside down time. Bye.
This podcast has been produced by TMDS and accelerated by Rome Phone. Rome Phone brings you the most reliable virtual phone service to run your business and protect your home number from unwanted calls. Visit romephone.ca to get started.